0: From Podcast
1: One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA.
0: The National Security Podcast.
2: The most pressing national security concern is international terrorism on our soil.
1: An exclusive interview with Rod Rosenstein, Deputy Attorney General at the U.S. Justice Department. We have 115,000 employees and tens of thousands of contractors. A key topic? The investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election.
2: If anybody interferes with our elections, no matter who it may be, I think it's appropriate for us to take action. And elections are just the beginning. Cyber threats aren't just about elections. Cyber threats are about commercial activities, electric grids and computer networks. He digs into the opioid epidemic. Fentanyl is responsible for a surge in drug overdose deaths in the United States. That and much more coming up on this episode of Target USA.
1: And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA.
0: The National Security Podcast.
1: I'm J.J. Green. We covered a lot of ground in our interview with Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. We started out with concern in the Trump administration about leaks, On August 4th, 2017, Attorney General Jeff Sessions made it clear in a press conference the Department of Justice was going to crack down on leaks, and this is a part of what he had to say.
4: First, let me say that I strongly agree with the president and condemn in the strongest terms the staggering number of leaks undermining the ability of our government to protect this country. Just yesterday, we saw reports in the media about conversations the president had with foreign leaders. No one is entitled to surreptitiously fight to advance battles in the media by revealing sensitive government information. No government can be effective when its leaders cannot discuss sensitive matters in confidence or talk freely in confidence with foreign leaders. We're here today to talk about the dramatic growth in the number of unauthorized disclosures of classified national security information in the past several months. This includes leaks to both the media and in some cases even unauthorized disclosures to our foreign adversaries. Referrals for investigations of classified leaks to the Department of Justice from our intelligence agencies have exploded. In the first six months of this administration, the Department of Justice has already received nearly as many criminal referrals involving unauthorized disclosures of classified information as we received in the previous three years combined.
1: Rosenstein was at that press conference, and we started our interview several weeks later on that topic. First question, one of the real concerns that's been put out there by the Attorney General, the Director of National Intelligence, and you were a part of that uh, scenario as well, uh, where we came here to the Justice Department to hear the press conference about the concerns and about what was going to be done to deal with leaks. That's been a problem in the, in the intelligence community and beyond for, for many years and it seems to be getting worse, so would you first define how serious you think the problem
2: is? I think uh, the threshold issue you need to recognize is when people talk about leaks, they often mean a wide range of disclosures of information. Here at the Department of Justice, our responsibility is limited to criminal violations. Uh, And so uh, when we talk about leaks here that violate the law, we're typically talking about unauthorized disclosures of classified information, that is information, uh, the release of which would potentially damage the national security of the United States. And so sometimes people confuse these issues. You know, we're talking here about situations where people have signed an oath to maintain the confidentiality of information. They understand that that information, because of the way it was collected or because of the substance of the information, uh, could adversely affect national security if it were released, and yet they go ahead and release it anyway. Uh, And so that's the type of information that we're concerned about here, and we're talking here about Unauthorized disclosure is not about whistleblowing, there are accepted ways uh, in which you can raise concerns if you work for the government and you have access to information that you believe represents a violation of law or policy. There are lawful ways for you to raise those issues, uh, but leaking it publicly in a way that's going to damage national security is not one of those authorized ways. What are
1: you going to do about those people or to those people who knowingly engage in that kind of behavior?
2: So what we are going to do, first of all, uh, the Department of Justice works in coordination with the intelligence agencies that own the information. So in any case where there's been an unauthorized disclosure of information, the threshold issue is whether the agency that owns that information uh, believes that the disclosure is in violation of their policies. Uh, So the, the referrals essentially have to come from the agencies. Uh, And Once the agency has made that determination, they refer that information to the department. We have experienced professionals, prosecutors, and agents who review the allegations uh, and evaluate whether or not there's a prospect for developing a criminal case. And In cases where we think that there is a reasonable likelihood that uh, we could develop a prosecutable case, we devote whatever resources are necessary to try to identify the person who made the disclosure uh, and then hold them accountable. There are a number of different statutes that we can use to prosecute these cases, but uh, as a general matter what we 're focused on is identifying you know, who made the disclosure and then determining what potential harm might have been caused by the disclosure
1: This is not something new for you for for your office. Uh, this is something that 's been done for many years, going you know essentially based on what it is that the the agency, as you said that owns the information tells you, "Hey, this is a problem this you know we don 't know what the deal is with this or." We need to deal with this individual. It's not new, but what seems to be happening is there are many more leaks. It seems, and many more. I don't know if they're undisclosed, uh, unauthorized disclosures or not. But are you able to tell easily what is what, or does that require an investigation as well?
2: Well, it requires a determination by the owner of the information. Now, keep in mind, uh, you know, when you read something in the newspaper that appears to be an unauthorized disclosure or a leak. Uh, you're not going to know that for fact unless you consult with the agency that owns the information because they're going to know, number one, is it accurate? If you read something that's not accurate, uh, then that's probably not a prosecutable leak. Uh, and uh, is it, is it uh, information that is closely held? That is, does the agency know that there's a limited number of people who have access to that information? It would be the universe of suspects. And is there potential harm to national security by virtue of the disclosure? Uh, so, those are determinations that uh, that we don't make independently in the Justice Department. We rely on the intelligence agencies to make those determinations.
1: Can you give us an example of a situation where a prosecution would take place?
2: Well, you could look at cases that the Department actually has prosecuted, uh, and there, there, are, there are a range of those. But you know, what makes it clear cut, uh, first of all, uh, what's the potential harm? of releasing that particular type of information. As I said, it may be a result of the substance of the information, that is, the the nature of the information itself. It may be a a result of the way in which the information was obtained, uh, because it may be that it's uh, information obtained through what we refer to as an intelligence method or source, for example, where there are a limited number of places it could have come from. And disclosing that piece of information would tell our foreign adversary how we got it. Uh, And so, uh, you know, that's an example of the, the type of harm that could be done. Uh, by the disclosure of classified information.
1: How would you classify the situation or characterize the situation involving Edward Snowden?
2: Well, that's an example of, a, of an open matter, and so it wouldn't be appropriate for me to comment about that. Uh, you know, generally speaking, though, uh, you know, there are people who have access to government information either because they're working on the substance of the information or because they are helping to process it. You know, the government ha- needs people to, to maintain custody of its information. You need technology experts, for example. Uh, And all those people incur the same obligation. When they take on that responsibility and they're given access to classified information, they voluntarily sign a form where they certify that they understand that it's classified and they take on a responsibility to maintain the integrity and confidentiality of that information.
1: Oftentimes, people like me, journalists, uh, get this information, whether, whatever classification or, 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 or category it's in, get this information. What's your view on dealing with the journalists that get this information and, in some cases, publish it or broadcast it or use it?
2: You know, I think it, it's misleading to try to generalize about uh, information because each piece of information May or may not be classified. It may or may not be damaging to national security. So, uh, you know, setting aside legal considerations, you would expect uh, any responsible person, if they had access to information that they thought could harm national security, uh, to be cautious about whether or not they publish it. And we think that's true. I mean, even the uh, even the most uh, even the organizations that are least respectful of the United States government. Uh, are still willing to consider the potential harm that could be caused by the disclosure of classified information. So I think that uh, uh, there's a separate issue as to whether or not it's unlawful. Uh, I think everybody recognizes that you may have a moral obligation not to disclose things if it's going to cause harm.
1: Have you seen at any point in your career the scale of leaks or unauthorized disclosures that we've seen in the last few months or years?
2: Well, uh, I haven't been in this business for uh, more than a couple of decades, so I can't comment on the historical uh, uh, comparison, uh, but I can' tell you that we've seen in recent months a significant volume of leaks, and uh, you know, that's what's motivated the Attorney General is the concern about the volume of leaks and, uh, and the sensitivity of some of the information that uh, appears to be reflected in those leaks.
1: Another. Key issue that we discussed was what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, at a Unite the Right rally in mid-August. Holy sh! Holy! Shit. Holy shit. That Nazi just thrown into
4: people. people. Oh my god! Oh my god. And
1: at god. the end of that contentious rally, 32-year-old Heather Heyer, a native of Virginia and a resident of Charlottesville, a local paralegal, was run over and killed by a car driven by James Alex Fields, Jr., who was participating in the Unite the Right rally. The outcome of the event was a flashpoint for the Justice Department.
2: What's always top of mind and pressing to us is making sure that we you know, pursue appropriate investigations and prosecutions when there are violations of civil rights that warrant investigation and prosecution. Charlottesville matter is one, uh, obviously, high-profile recent example where the Department of Justice uh, immediately reacted to that uh, and committed the resources of our FBI and our local U.S. Attorney's Office to provide support for state and local law enforcement and and to determine whether or not there uh, would be any potential federal prosecution. Uh, But we do that sort of thing every day all over the country. Whenever matters come to the attention of our investigators and prosecutors, we devote appropriate resources to investigate them.
1: What about the Charlottesville case made it something? essentially put it in the place where you needed to take immediate action?
2: Well, I, I, the the point I think is important to recognize is that uh, our investigators and prosecutors are always available to take action when they get leads, when information comes to their attention. The Charlottesville matter obviously got a, a lot of national publicity, so it came to my attention immediately, where not every matter does. Uh, but obviously, the uh, you know, the nature of the event and the uh, the circumstances under which one victim lost her life uh, were particularly tragic.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Resources, when it comes to something like that, um, how how do you work? Uh, is this something that you work f- investigate from 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 a perch here? Or do you coordinate out in the community, in the place where this took place, to see what they know, what they have, what they're doing? How does that pro- process work?
2: Well, the FBI has field offices all over the country. And so uh, typically, the primary responsibility for these sorts of investigations would fall to the local FBI field office uh, and to the local US attorney. But often, there'll be support from Washington, the Civil Rights Division. Uh, based here in Washington D.C. has significant expertise Uh, and so in cases where it's appropriate we'll either designate somebody from D.C. to go out into the uh, jurisdiction and personally conduct the investigation or at least provide support uh, here from D.C. given their expertise. But the, uh, one of the advantages the FBI has in these sorts of cases is that they've got a national network of agents. So they use Charlottesville as an example. Uh, you know The local police department was investigating that case, but the FBI had the ability immediately to send out leads to other places in the country, for example, the hometown of the suspect. So they could go out into the suspect's neighborhood, and within hours, they'd be out there conducting interviews, gathering evidence, potentially executing search warrants. That's the advantage a national police organization brings to those sort of investigations. and so. Uh, there may be a federal prosecution but even if there isn't we have the ability to obtain that information and share it with the local authorities to make sure that justice is done we're talking with rod rosenstein deputy attorney
1: general at the justice department that's only a couple of the issues we discussed
2: and when we come back after this break we have a responsibility to protect the integrity of our elections and to pursue appropriate criminal cases and so uh, If anybody interferes with our elections, no matter who it may be, I think it's appropriate for us to take action. Russia, front and center, on Target USA.
0: The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green,
1: and this is Target USA.
0: The National Security Podcast.
1: We're speaking with Rod Rosenstein, Deputy Attorney General at the Justice Department. And we start this part of our program off with concerns about Russia. On January 10th, 2017, Director of National Intelligence Jim Clapper revealed Russia had attacked the U.S.
4: We have high confidence that President Putin ordered an influence campaign in 2016 aimed at the U.S. presidential election.
1: President Barack Obama knew something was afoot in September 2016, and he had some words with Vladimir Putin. Cut it out. There were going to be some serious consequences if he didn't. CIA director at the time, John Brennan, warned his counterpart, Alexander Bortnikov to stop the meddling.
2: Mr. Bortnikov denied that Russia was doing anything to influence our presidential election.
1: But according to a high-confidence, unanimous assessment from the entire intelligence community, Russia was interfering, and it continued.
4: Moscow's influence campaign blended covert intelligence operations with overt efforts by Russian government agencies, state-funded media, third-party intermediaries, and paid social media users.
1: The list of targets was extensive.
4: People and organizations associated with the 2016 U.S. presidential election, including both major U.S. political parties.
1: Republican Senator Marco Rubio was one of those targeted.
4: In July of 2016, uh, shortly after I announced that I would seek reelection to the United States Senate, former members of my presidential campaign team Uh, who had access to the internal information of my presidential campaign, were targeted by IP addresses with an unknown location within Russia.
1: And on November 8th, after the election results were in, Vladimir Ziranovsky, a Russian politician, celebrated with champagne. And intelligence sources say other Russian, government and intelligence officials, in intercepted conversations, congratulated each other for achieving something they had tried unsuccessfully to do during the entire Cold War. How did they do
4: it? They have an extremely capable intelligence service with um, exceptional cyber capabilities that they have repeatedly demonstrated.
1: And it all happened right in plain sight. So we sat down with Rosenstein at the Justice Department right here on Constitution Avenue in Washington to talk about Russia and what the Justice Department was going to do about that problem. There's a huge problem with Russia in this country and, you know, many of the folks that I've spoken to over the last 10 months have told me that this is a problem that's been insidious in in its nature and it's something that has been growing and growing and growing. I'd like to hear from you on your view of, of Russia's behavior towards the U.S. over the years and the aggressive nature of Russia's activities.
2: Well, your, your opinion about that, obviously, is a function of whatever experts you've talked with, and I don't know who they are uh, or what they know, so I'm not in a position to comment on that. You know, from my perspective in the Department of Justice, we have a responsibility to protect the integrity of our elections uh, and to pursue appropriate criminal cases. And so uh, if anybody interferes with our elections, no matter who it may be, I think it's appropriate for us to take action, and when there are criminal prosecutions that are justified, we need to pursue those criminal investigations. But. But uh, you know, with regard to the broader issue, obviously, uh, the United States has a lot of intelligence agencies that are continually engaged in identifying and detecting foreign threats. Uh, and cyber threats aren't just about elections. You know, cyber threats are about, uh, are about commercial activities. They're about national security matters. They're about electric grids and computer networks. There are a lot of uh, cyber activities that need to be protected. And that responsibility falls primarily to our intelligence agencies
1: is there any publicly available evidence from from your perspective at this point that that Russia has been engaging in in those those activities the cyber tampering with things like the electric grid obviously the election we know there isn't there was the decision by the intelligence community to say yes they did from the highest levels metal Is the problem with Russia from an investigative point of view broader than just an election?
2: I think uh, what you need to recognize is that there have been a number of public reports uh, about alleged uh, Russian activities related to the election, including a report of the intelligence community. And what you have, if you've asked about public information, you have an unclassified version of a report that reflects the uh, assessments of our intelligence community. Uh, There have also been public reports recently about... uh, Uh, allegations of Russian uh, advertisements, for example, that were posted on various networks. Uh, And so there are a lot of uh, public sources of information out there. And uh, I think what people need to keep in mind is that there's a distinction between uh, people trying to sway American elections and and succeeding in swaying American elections. Uh, I think one of our responsibilities is to Make sure that people understand you know, what the risks are, but also that they make their own determinations. You know, American citizens are pretty savvy, and when they decide who to vote for, I don't think they're going to be influenced by ads posted by foreign governments. I think people are uh, are more thoughtful about that in the way that they make their decisions. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, if we have foreign countries that are seeking interference in our elections, I think we need to take appropriate actions in response.
1: What, kind of, what, what action would you take from a justice point of view? What, what is it that you can do that would, if Russia were to be found as you investigate them, to have done these things? What could you do to them?
2: Well, see, I think uh, that's the point I was trying to make, which is that uh, what we do in the Department of Justice, in terms of law enforcement, is different from what yes. our intelligence community does. Uh, and so combating cyber threats is a role the Justice Department has something to do with. Uh, but the primary responsibility for dealing with those threats falls in the intelligence community. Other key
1: topics of our conversation here at the Justice Department included a trip he took recently to China, where he discussed, among other things, Interpol. He also talked about the opioid crisis. He talked about some rather sensitive issues with the Chinese, including Chinese fugitives that China won't take back from the U.S. And, of course, Russia came up in that part of our conversation as well. Here's how it went. You talk about transnational crime. Mm-hmm. One of the things we know that Russia is very, very good at is in, involving in, trans, in the government, having connections to transnational crime uh, and organizations that do some of the work that appears to be part of their broader strategy to meddle and to engage in activities in countries all over the world, not just the US, but certainly in the US. So how does Interpol play a role What role does Interpol play uh, in this process for you?
2: So you have packed a lot into that question. Uh, I want to answer the question part of it, uh, which is that Interpol is an international police agency. And the primary function of Interpol is to allow law enforcement agencies to coordinate uh, across national boundaries. And there are two primary ways you do that. There's a collection of information. And there's the uh, uh, arrest and uh, extradition of fugitives. Uh, And so that's the function that Interpol primarily plays. It's a clearinghouse, really, for requests for information uh, between law enforcement agencies of foreign countries, and also for extradition of suspects uh, who are caught, uh, who are suspected of crimes in one country and are located in another country. Uh, And so Interpol uh, provides a a very useful function, I think, uh, in uh, the ability to share information about suspects. And it also gives us a forum to talk about uh, issues of law enforcement and counterterrorism. And I took that opportunity when I was in China at the Interpol conference uh, last week to talk about those two issues, about the importance of uh, all countries, uh, using the information that's available to them to identify terrorist suspects uh, and to protect their respective borders. And also the obligation to, uh, to work together on law enforcement issues. Uh, and, of course, also I discussed the rule of law. I think that's in a, whenever the U.S. is in an international forum like that, it's useful for us to talk about the rule of law and what it means to us. Uh, many countries use that term, rule of law, but not everybody means it in the way that we do.
1: One of the things you said during your speech was that preventing foreign terrorist fighters from turning our homelands into battlefield is a priority we all share. And you said the best, we, the best way to confront that challenge is found in three core principles. Can you uh, elaborate on those principles?
2: Well, we, we, what we did was we summarized the, you know, the, the functions of collecting and using intelligence information uh, in the concept of collect, compare, and contribute, the idea being that every country should be collecting information. You know, know who's coming into your country, essentially. Uh, when somebody arrives at a border, You've got to know who they are, know where they're coming from, and do an appropriate check to make sure that you identify any danger they may represent to your country. And compare, that is take that information and and look into other databases to see whether or not there's additional information about that person. Uh, And contribute. Make sure that we're, you know, all countries are contributing their data to uh, other countries so that uh, if somebody's entering, for example, Britain. Uh, And we know something about that person that makes you suspect that they may represent a danger We want to make sure that we share that information with Britain And so uh, that's the model uh, that we discussed. It's it's the norm here. The United States has already adopted that after 9-11 I think we're very good uh, at uh, collecting information uh, comparing it making sure that all of our intelligence and law enforcement uh, databases are properly integrated so that we don't we no longer have the wall, for example, where we might know in one part of the government that somebody's a threat but not share it with our uh, law enforcement agencies that are in position to do something about it, and then contribute because uh, the United States actually obtains a lot of information relevant to foreign terrorist fighters that then we then share with foreign countries that are able to take action and deter or prevent terrorist activity.
1: Mm-hmm. Interpol has long complained that the international community did not recognize them um, enough. Um, do you believe, or, or put it this way, they felt as though they should occupy a more, uh, I don't know what the word is, but perhaps should have a, a heavier hammer or a bigger hammer on on the international scene when it comes to doing their work. Does Interpol have the tools that it needs and uh, are there others that it can have or, or should have? You
2: know, I'm not sure that I know the source of the criticism that you're identifying. I think the important thing to recognize is Interpol is uh, an organization of police agencies. It's not a police agency itself. Uh, and so you know, the United States has representatives to Interpol, uh, and they work together to perform those Interpol functions, uh, but they're still representatives of the United States. They're, they're not a sovereign agency that conducts its own law enforcement operations.
1: So essentially, they have what they need to do what they should be doing.
2: Well, the function that they serve is uh, really as an intermediary among police agencies uh, and not as an autonomous police agency in themselves.
1: What else did you come away from China with as it relates to national security in the u.s anything particular? I mean, you spoke specifically about Interpol, but you know the. US has issues with China as well. Yes. Uh, what else did you come away with?
2: Well one function of my trip was actually to speak at Interpol, Uh, but while I was there, I had a series of bilateral meetings with Chinese officials, uh, and I also spoke uh, at the U.S. Embassy. So it was really a very worthwhile, kind of a busy trip. I was only there for three days, but uh, we had a lot of activities, and the the visits with the Chinese officials I thought were very productive. It's part of an ongoing dialogue that the United States is engaged in now with China that uh, I, I hope will lead to. Uh, a more constructive law enforcement relationship where we can cooperate more. We have very different systems. Uh, China uh, uh, has uh, uh, become more of a law enforcement partner in recent years, but they still come from a very very different tradition. Uh, And uh, obviously, they don't respect the same individual rights that we do in the United States. Uh, And so we're not in agreement on all issues. But our goal is to find enough common ground where we can develop a a working relationship and cooperate on things uh, that are in our common interest. And so we talked about a number of issues. Uh, One of my top issues in dealing with the Chinese was the issue of fentanyl. Fentanyl is an opioid-type drug. It's a synthetic opioid that uh, Uh, is responsible for a surge in drug overdose deaths in the United States and we believe that uh, a large uh, source of the problem here in the United States is China, that there are uh, laboratories in China that produce fentanyl analogs that are then sent to the United States, often by mail, uh, and result in deaths here in the United States. We've been working with China uh, on identifying which fentanyl analogs are causing deaths Uh, and working with them on trying to schedule those substances and uh, uh, prevent people from shipping them into the United States. And we found the Chinese to be somewhat cooperative on that, so I'm optimistic, actually, that uh, as we continue to work with them, uh, we'll succeed in stemming that flow of fentanyl from China and hopefully saving a lot of American lives. So I think that uh, the conversations were very productive in that respect. And there are a number of other issues we talked with them about. One is repatriation. We have a lot of Chinese nationals, tens of thousands of Chinese nationals in the United States, Uh, who are no longer welcome here and subject to deportation but we have not been able to get China to issue the appropriate papers to allow them to return to China Uh, and so that's one of the key issues that we've been talking about uh, in our discussions with the Chinese and there are a number of other issues we talked about Uh, fugitives uh, that uh, uh, China is seeking in the U.S. and that the U.S. is seeking in China. We talked about exit bans. The Chinese, uh, in some cases, have prevented American citizens from leaving China, and that's an issue of great importance to the Attorney General. Uh, I think we're making progress on that issue as well. So all the issues that we raised with them, uh, we found them to be uh, receptive to discussing, and uh, I'm optimistic that as this dialogue continues, Uh, we're going to see additional cooperation from the Chinese and more areas where we can agree uh, on law enforcement issues. We discussed many things during our visit,
1: but I thought it was imperative before we left to ask him specifically what he thought were the top national security issues, challenges, problems, and threats the U.S. faced. And here's what he had to say.
2: The most pressing national security concern for America since 9-11 has been the threat of international terrorism on our soil and so that occupies a lot of our time at the Department of Justice in fact uh, I typically spend about a half hour every day meeting with officials from our National Security Division and reviewing proposed FISA applications foreign intelligence surveillance applications uh, and uh, you know that that uh, Experience has been very eye-opening for me in terms of what kind of dangers we face and the work that the intelligence community is doing on a daily basis. In what sense is it eye-opening? Well, it's eye-opening because you actually learn about uh, what foreign activities are suspected of occurring in the United States. and uh, uh, So that experience, uh, back to your original question, uh, you know, that relates to what I believe is our primary national security challenge, which is protecting against terrorist acts in the United States. But we view uh, the challenge more broadly than just physical terrorist acts in the United States because there is a, a, an ongoing foreign threat uh, uh, of cyber activity, of cyber intrusions, uh, of cyber disruption. Uh, the theft of data, and I think those are all significant national security threats as well. And as the world becomes more and more interconnected electronically and we become more dependent upon uh, the Internet uh, and computers to maintain our data, we become more and more vulnerable. And so that's uh, also, I think, an important and ongoing challenge for us is the, the danger of all sorts of bad things that can happen when people get access to our computer networks.
1: Quick question. Follow on that. Um, some years ago, NSA and other intelligence officials warned about this pivot from um, uh, um, disrupt, di- disruptive attacks to destructive attacks. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any evidence that we're in that in that in that realm now?
2: Well, uh, d- disruptive and destructive attacks, in terms of I- efforts to interfere with the activities of our <clears throat> computer systems, uh, yeah, that's one important component. Uh, I'm also concerned, though, about the, the infiltration attacks, where their, their goal is to secretly take data as a, and, and not allow the victim to know they've been in the system. Uh, but uh, what you're talking about is a, a different matter, the possibility of cyber warfare, where uh, you know, foreign adversaries are disrupting our computer systems or destroying them. And certainly we've seen instances uh, that are not necessarily uh, cyber warfare, but maybe uh, cyber criminals trying to seize computer systems for example in order to extort payments uh, and that is certainly a continuing challenge for us and i think that uh, you know, for our technology experts uh, and for our intelligence agencies you know, that's going to be a growing challenge in years to come is to stay a, a step ahead of the cyber criminals who increasingly find creative ways to get into and disrupt our networks
1: okay um, anything you want to add that i haven't asked you about that you think is important
2: you know i appreciate the invitation there's so much to add about the Department of Justice. I think one thing that people don't appreciate uh, if they just read the front pages of the newspapers is how much the Department of Justice accomplishes on a daily basis. We have 115,000 employees in the department and tens of thousands of contractors who are doing a lot of good work day in and day out uh, in many areas that don't ordinarily come to the attention of the public but uh, are very important both in the law enforcement realm. Uh, as well as uh, our civil and uh, and other activities the Department performs. And that's been one of the benefits of this job is I get to to see all the many contributions the Department of Justice makes uh, for the good of the country.
1: Well, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, it's uh, great to have the opportunity to meet and sit down with you here in Washington. And we thank you uh, so much today for your time, and we wish you the best. Well, thank you very much. Enjoyed meeting with you. Coming up in our next episode. If you watched 60 Minutes on Sunday, October 22nd, you saw him. His voice was disguised, so was his face, but his story was anything but disguised. His name, Tamir Al-Nuri. He spent years as an undercover FBI Muslim agent, living amongst terrorists.
2: I am a Muslim, I am an American, and I've been serving my country for 22 years and counting. And I am appalled at what these animals are doing to my country while desecrating my religion.
1: Tamir Al-Nuri. You heard him there on 60 Minutes. In our next episode, you'll hear him right here. Thank you for checking in with us. Follow us on Twitter at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. That's T-U-S-A Podcast. And if you have any thoughts about programs, send me an email at Green. one word, that's the letter J, the color green, at whiskey, tango, Oscar Papa, Jay Green at WTOP.com. I'm JJ
3: Green, and this is Target USA,
0: the National Security Podcast.
3: The Serial Killer Podcast, hosted by me, Thomas Weiberg Thun, is the podcast dedicated to serial killers who they were, what they did, and how. Join me as I sit down bi weekly to bring you. Dear listener, into the dark land of serial murder and psychopathy. The show goes into graphic detail on the most infamous and lesser known serial killers from around the world, with each episode covering one unique serial killer. So far, the show has covered serial killer superstars, such as BTK, Jeffrey Dahmer, and the Yorkshire Ripper. And lesser-known killers such as Elias Abuelazan and Anatoly Onoprienko. Be advised, this show is not for children as it takes you deep into the twisted world of ultimate evil. You can find me exclusively at podcastone.com or on the new Podcast One app. Also, don't forget to rate and review on Apple
4: Podcasts.
1: Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.